I don't know what's up at the New York Times. I mean, it's it's the New York Times is really a, a land of contrast. It takes with one hand and gives with the other, right? So I, I just saw today that the New York Times has a new podcast uh, with uh, old, old friends of the show, Kevin Roos and Casey Newton, called Hard Fork, uh, which, I mean, with those people and that name coming from that outlet, it gar- guaranteed... Uh, guaranteed to at least be a few sources of content for TMK in the future. <laughs> yeah, you know, I told Jathan earlier it was going to be a hard pass, but I think that um, we we're going to listen. We're going to hate listen a little because you know what we we you got to know your enemy, right? Or at least you got to know um, some people who we think you know have a ten- tendency to uh, to indulge uncritically in a lot of um a lot of hype i mean i was listening to the promo i haven't listened to an episode yet you know i i'm recovering the first from episode only you know, just uh, dropped yeah so i'm i'm not gonna do that to myself you know today's my day of rest and relaxation with the boys and um the preview was interesting in that it was like laying out how uh you know the old old tech you know the stuff like Facebook and Twitter and social media in general, right? And other forms of tech are going away and becoming less relevant um, and being replaced with things like crypto and the metaverse. Yeah. You know, companies that make hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue are being displaced uh, by, uh, by cryptocurrency and uh, metaverse, which is also now the the prime product of one of those major companies that's supposedly becoming less relevant, is really interesting framing. And I'd be, and I, you know, I'll, I'll indulge it. Uh, I don't think that the thesis makes much sense. You know, um, it'll be fun to do a little bit of a like a Morozovian analysis just on the superficial tendency of some crit, some tech critics or journalists. Maybe critics is not the right word, but tech reporters and columnists who, um, you know, kind of forecast trends out of like two or three fiscal quarters, you know, um, saying that, well, you know, since the metaverse is here, uh, you know, Facebook is fading away. No, it's not. Cue the big Lebowski. That that's just like your opinion, man. Yeah, (laughs) and and it's not only just his opinion; it's wishful thinking, right? Oh, you mean the metaverse is the future? Is that the same metaverse that CoinDesk just repeated? Uh, Decentraland and the Sandbox, two two metaverse platforms that are valued each at over a billion dollars, are 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 absolutely you know topping out at. Um, let's see. So 38 active users for Decentraland in the past 24 hours and a whopping mm-hmm. 522 active users for the sandbox in the past hour. Is that, is that the, is that the metaverse? That's the future. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's disingenuous, right? Maybe that was just a really yeah. bad 24 hours for those two yeah. platforms. So let's see what CoinDesk <laughs> says here from, a uh, uh, DAP radars, uh, compilation of daily active users. What, what was the, the okay, I'll, I'll get what, what was the best, right? The peak daily active users, and I'm gonna, add, I'm gonna let you guess what was <laughs> Decentraland's largest number ever of daily users. Um, a thousand, <laughs> ten thousand, bro. 
no EC thinking. That's why. That's why these companies are overvalued. It's all vibes. It was six hundred and seventy-five was the largest daily active u- daily users. Are you fucking with me? Land. Are you and that fucking doesn't even with me right now? Active users. That's just day like people that maybe are just logged in but not doing anything. Uh, all right, what? now now give me the sandbox. Right? What was the sandbox's largest <laughs> users? Um, yeah, it is bigger than Decentraland. Two thousand. <laughs> All right, now, 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 I got you going the other way. Forty five hundred, <laughs> four thousand five hundred and three, oh to be exact. <laughs> it's more than I thought, but now that I hear that, I'm just like, <sighs> I feel like so you get you decay from four hundred forty five hundred to what? What did they have now? Uh, to uh, five hundred, uh, five hundred and twenty-two, and that's why we're de- decayed from six seventy-five to uh thirty-eight. <laughs> <And these laughs> each of the daily active yeah. users the future. on these this platforms are apparently each worth over a million dollars, and in Decentraland's oh, case, they're each worth like. Uh, like well over ten million. No, they're uh, they're worth about thirty million dollars each. Bro, <laughs> 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 this is the future. Uh, so you know, these are the hard hitting insights that we come to expect from our our boys at the New York Times. But as we said, sometimes the New York Times take it with one hand and they give it with the other. I don't know what's happening over on the opinion pages. But the the lunatics are running the asylum. The comrades have taken over the consent manufacturing facility because uh, we've Justin Rosniak, friend of the show, uh, just had a really fucking good essay um, opinion essay come out about all the things he talked about on our show. You know, pr- the failures of the uh, railroad companies, the failures of uh, you know, precision scheduled railroading, um, the failures of workers' rights, and ending his piece ends with this beautiful little little thing. Um, so rail companies seem set on their self-destructive tendencies, often proposing one-man crews and labor negotiations that would further squeeze workers. At the end of this paragraph, he he in the last sentence of the piece, he he then writes, "If they can't figure out how to run a functioning railroad." Maybe it's time to take it out of their hands. I I would I never expect to see the day where I see uh, hard call, explicit calls for nationalization of the railroads in the New York Times. Can I get Can I get a yeah boy in the chat if you're listening? <laughs> just right. just scream out yeah boy. We're talking about it. We're talking about nationalization here at um, on CBS. Should we take over? No, sixty minutes. That's what it is. Here on 60 Minutes, we're talking about nationalization. <laughs> Should American railroads be taken over by the government? More at the top of the hour. And, and this is only, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, also a friend of the show, Daniel Carr, TMK, just, uh, just keeps batting a thousand. Mm-hmm. Is what we keep doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Daniel Carr had a really... Uh, really, really fucking good and long um, opinion essay in the New York Times all about uh, the politics of mental health uh, and the absolute failures of, you know, the both the, the, the 
government policy and Silicon Valley technology startups, you know, better health, that kind of shit. Like their absolute failure of understanding and approaching mental health. Like it was a really, really radical piece, which also presages some of the things we're going to be talking about next week with the, uh, the, the co-authors of the brilliant book, health communism. Um, mm. But you know, all I got to say is, you know, both, both good and bad things happen in that, at the New York times right now. Um, and the New York Times just had a really, really good uh, long report come out about uh, the rampant allegations, alleged, uh, defrauding by insurers of the Medicare Advantage plan, um, the privatized Medicare plan, uh, with, you know, which we've talked about before with like our long deep dive into Clover Health, which was a, you know, startup, a Chamath Palahapatia joint premised on uh, defrauding Medicare Advantage. Uh, and so, you know, they, 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 that was that's a really good report, obviously close to my heart. And obviously, if there are any New York Times editors, um, any of these, you know, comrades that are sneaking this shit by the opinion pages uh, listening right now, mm-hmm. shout out to your boy. I got I got an essay locked and loaded about the politics and technology of how insurers treat everybody else except themselves as always already doing fraud, right? Even though they are obviously the ones doing all the fraud. So hit, hit me up. I got, I got a great essay. <laughs> let, let, yeah. me, let me join the comrades in the New York times opinion pages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's get Jathan in there spreading some propaganda. That's what we need. You know, that's what we need. When that's what we want. That's what I want. Well-researched, well-argued, and completely fact-checked propaganda, to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) The way Agitprop should be. friends and enemies it's episode 199 of this machine kills i'm jathan joined by ed and producer jeremy as always top of the show you know we we don't do unlike a lot of podcasts we don't we don't do as much like kind of listener mailbags and stuff like that I would like to get more into that. I think that's fun. We just, that's more of a failure of our own planning, but I did receive, I want to start off this episode by reading a really nice piece of uh, mail that we got. I did. I got, I got an email by uh, uh, an assistant professor in mathematics um, named Thomas Morrill. You know, shout out to Thomas if they're listening to the show right now. Uh, but uh, Thomas wrote, us a really nice email about effective altruism uh, and uh, an, an argument. 
I love a good by your own logic dismantling of, mm-hmm. of, of a bad argument, of a bad position, whatever, you know, even, you know, just definitely, you know, definitely taking their own premises as true and then, you know, using their own logic, their own argumentation against them. I love that. I love that kind of judo shit. Um, but Thomas lays out a really, really beautiful example of this. I just, I just want to start the show by reading it. So Thomas writes, I put together an argument regarding effective altruism, and I thought you would enjoy it. One, an effective altruist is prepared to sacrifice the well-being of any number of present-day people in the interest of a larger future generation. Two, the notions of the present and the future are relative to the individual. Three, By the second uh, premise, when we consider future generations, we must acknowledge that these people will see themselves as present generations. Four, by one and three, a future effective altruist is prepared to sacrifice the well-being of any number of future people in the interest of a larger future future generation. Five, thus, the existence of a future effective altruist is an existential threat towards the well-being of the future generation. Six, therefore, in order to secure the well-being of a larger future generation, current-day effective altruists should take actions to ensure that no effective altruists exist in future generations. Seven, effective altruists who do not take this action are endangering future generations by leaving them at the mercy of future effective altruists. So... I love this. Thomas goes on the right. Perhaps Mm -hmm. an effective altruist could claim that they are aligned with the future future generation and there is no dilemma. However, that does not get them out of the bind that they need to act to ensure there are no future future effective altruists. At some point, the generation which is supposed to be benefiting from all of this needs to not have effective altruists among its members or else be at the mercy of someone else claiming to be acting in the interest of a yet-to-be-seen future future and then you know thomas ends it by saying quote you know of course the whole thing is bunk but i like to see it fall apart on its own terms and thomas i agree we love to see it fall apart on its own terms this is uh this is this is proof that i think tmk has the best among the smartest Mm -hmm. uh most cleverest most engaged listenership of any podcast out there um you know this is such a a clever and interesting uh argument that essentially you know the 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 effective altruist is always a threat to the present generation Mm -hmm. which means that the existence of any of effective altruists in any future is always a threat to the present on behalf of some yet to be seen, uh, foreseen future. I, I love this, you know? So in other words, the, the best way to secure the future is to uh, eradicate the ideology of effective altruism in the present. Perfect. Amazing. No notes. <laughs> it's, uh, I just want to say thank you for your service. All right. Thank you for your service because that made my day. I showed it to a lot of friends <laughs> who were who are also uh, who are who are philosophy f- uh, students or or grads or you know 
working towards teaching it. Good, God bless them. Good luck. Godspeed. Um, and we and loved it. And I think one is going to try to work on a, an even in, uh, a longer version of this too and send it to us and see what we think about it, which would be fun. You know, if you want to send, if you want to send the logicus tractatus philosophicus of anti-effective altruism to us, I'll read it. Uh, yeah, you know. I'll, I'll 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 read it. I'll read it, and I'll love it. I'll love it. Uh, these are these are the kinds of emails we welcome. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we do yeah, get other emails that are we get some uh, weird ones. <laughs> less well received and less welcomed, and we're on the weirder side. Uh, but but Thomas's email is an exemplar of. Uh, the ones I am happy to receive in my inbox, uh, and my my email is easy uh, is for better or worse easy to find um, because I work at a university. Uh, but if if you feel compelled at all to send us a DM uh, mm-hmm. or send us an email or a message of any other kind, uh, take Thomas's uh, as a template for uh, for what to do and what to send. Um, thank you, Thomas. <laughs> thank you for your service. We salute you. Let let's move on. So I want to, you know, I want to anchor this episode by talking about a long, a, a, a long article in the New Yorker. Again, of all places, um, a, a well that we go to for you know a, the land of contrast, like the New York Times. It both gives and takes, uh, and and they have a they have a a, a long piece titled. Has the CIA done more harm than good? Now, we'll get into this later. I want to anchor the episode with this piece. I just, I'm just foreshadowing it now. Uh, and, and if any listeners, you know, you want to pause and go read it real quick, you can do that. But uh, I, I will say I'm pleasantly surprised to see uh, that despite the the very asinine uh, question in the in the title that it falls on the side of uh it, the CIA has done more harm than good like decidedly falls on that side in other words the correct side mm-hmm. um, but before we get to that i don't even know why i brought it up now i'm just so excited to chomp on that bit <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah it is exciting i mean i think i was kind of surprised reading this piece because i think there's still maybe it's like uh, a, a learned reaction from, you know, reading and going through so much nonsense and propaganda in general, defending arm, uh, the, you know, the arms of the American Empire, right? That I did not expect like a real critical look at the Central Intelligence Agency. I mean, as critical as we can expect, also, well, not actually. I should take that back because I don't want to demean the 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 importance of like is a, a critical look being put out there right but also like saying you know this is it's not like they're not like uh emulating chomsky here you know mm-hmm. this is not american power in the new mandarins but it is uh it's still really good i in in some places um and interesting to a lot of detail. All right, fuck it. Let's get into it. <laughs> we'll, okay, I mean, let's flip it and reverse it. We're already we're already building that momentum. Uh, well, I'll uh, I'll push the story that I was going to get us to uh, toward, to the end. That it'll actually this will work out because the the other stories are really nice kind of a palate cleanser to end on. Um, 
an uplifting note, which we don't do very often. So, all right, let's get into the CIA piece. But yeah, all right, go, keep going, uh, keep going. You're right. It's not a, it's not a Noam Chomsky, uh, you know, dissection of American hegemonic imperial power uh, vis-a-vis the CIA as one of many arms of that power. But it is quite good considering where it's coming from, uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of being in, in the New Yorker, right? Yeah, you know, I think, I don't know, I think, you know, there. typically whenever I think about media coverage of how America presents itself in the world, the, rain, the, the domains in which it becomes critical are typically when you see a group trying to agitate for a change in policy. Sometimes that's leftists, sometimes that's right-wingers, right? Um from the leftists, like maybe trying to disrupt some element of American hegemony or maybe arguing for some sort of multi, uh, you know, lateral, uh, arrangement or shift. And then, you know, right wing, maybe arguing for some way to reconsolidate or rebalance, um, American power to preserve a hegemony or, you know, to, to stall the decline or to undermine potential rivals. Right. And so the thing the, you know you don't usually see like I wouldn't expect to see the New Yorker do a very long piece on like things like has the World Bank done more harm than good has the IMF done more harm than good has um you know has the United Nations done more harm than good has the International Court of Justice done more harm than good like the international institutions that ostensibly are there to help development and help uh, unify and consolidate trade and justice and enforcement of some legal norms in the world, but are more often just used by as tools by, you know, those with power uh, to bludgeon those without it. Right. Um, so to see the CIA thing, man, I got to be real. When I first saw the headline, I was just, I, I was, I dismissed it. I, um, I, re, I, you know, I dismissed it because I just assumed that that, what we were going to end up, you know, usually whenever there's a question, the answer is no. So I thought we were going to get a really sophisticated piece arguing why actually the Central Intelligence Agency has been integral for preserving the stability of the known world or something like that. You know, no, I don't know why I said known world, but <laughs> of the of the world, right? And not oh, man, the CIA out there preserving the integrity of known and unknown worlds, of known knowns, unknown unknowns, and all the other Rumsfeldian worlds. <laughs> yeah, Donald Rumsfeld, may he burn and piss. <laughs> burn and piss. <laughs> Fuck that dude. The, fi- Glad he's the dead. fiery rivers of piss. <laughs> Glad he is dead. You know, couldn't have been soon enough. But yeah, you know, I think. I think they also, they, you know, they kind of, I also still wasn't sure where it was going to go when it opens up with Patrick Monaghan. I mean, you know, this is a guy, like he introduced the abolition, you know, as they open up, they talk about how in 1995 he introduced this abolition of the CIA Act. And this is, you know, comes after Aldrich Ames. He's this longtime officer. He's convicted of being a, a, a long time spy for the Soviet Union. Right. Um, and that he was, you know, basically an alcoholic with more money than he should have had because he was able to access high-level assignments that had names of sources inside of the USSR that were then traded, and so the FBI arrested him. Um, he was responsible for the death of ten agents. I mean, like it's not a very, 
uh, rosy picture for the CIA. And so he's like, okay, let, uh, let's get rid of it. He, he uses that moment to capitalize on getting rid of it. You know, and they write in the article, Monaghan said that the case was such a flamboyant display of incompetence that it might actually be a distraction from quote, the most fundamental defects of the CIA. He meant the agency and what he considered to be its defining failure had both missed the fact that the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse and done little to hasten its end. And that, so that was, that wasn't it. That, when I read that, I thought, okay, this is interesting. The, where, the direction in which we're going, right? Hmm. I had assumed maybe he was, um, I think this made me think that it was going to be a pro CIA piece, right? Arguing yeah, that like, the- like kind of taking the CIA to task for not being a competent yes. enough arm of imper- of American power. Right. You know, um, and that was, that was very, that was a sort of, um, it, it turned out ending to just be like a, a framing device. Why right? to kind of talk more about money hand and then open up to more under criticisms and, and, and analyses of the CIA, right? They go on to write a little bit more, um, how, well, you know, I'll, I'll summarize this quickly so I can quote it, but he's talking a bit about how if the CIA were disbanded, you know, state department could pick up the intelligence work. And so the New Yorker writes, Monaghan was in some respects being disingenuous. As he well knew, even if his bill had passed, spies and spying wouldn't have gone away. The State Department already had its own mini-agency, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. The Departments of Energy and Treasury each had one too. The Defense Intelligence Agency conducted clandestine operations. U.S. Army Intelligence, Air Force Intelligence, and the Office of Naval Intelligence kept themselves busy as well. The National Security Agency was nearly two decades away from the revelation by Edward Snowden, a contractor and a former CIA employee that it had collected information about the phone calls of most Americans. But it was a behemoth, even in Mahonian's time. So was the Federal Bureau of Investigation. There were about a dozen agencies then. Now, after reforms that were supposed to streamline things, there are 18, including the Office of the Director of the National Intelligence, ODNI, a sort of meta-CIA that has a couple thousand employees in the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis, the Drug Enforcement Administration, which currently has foreign offices in 69 countries, has an Office of National Security Intelligence. Four million people in the United States now have security clearances. And so now you start to get the picture of what's going on. Okay, like we're painting a picture of a massive, a massive uh, spying apparatus millions of people with seemingly redundant and unclear boundaries that stretch across the entire world. It's not really clear whether this makes, this is the best use of those resources. If you're doing it from that perspective of they're not spying well enough, but it's also not clear if this is a good thing in of itself, right? That, you know, they go on and say the CIA and the NSA, for example, they make use of satellite resources, including commercial ones. But there is a separate agency in charge of a spy satellite fleet, the National Reconnaissance Office, not to be confused with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which deals with both space-based and ground-level imaging. Or with Space Delta VI, the nation's newest intelligence agency, which is attached to the Space Force. Abolishing the CIA might do nothing more than reconfigure the turf war. And so this you know, then kind of starts to open up. Now we start to talk about, well, well, another reason why abolishing the CIA wouldn't do much is because the CIA also has most of its budget uh, dedicated to covert operations, to military operations, to things that go beyond mere blunder 
of logistics and turf war, but you know, assassination, sabotage, terrorism, uh, and, and 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 psyops, right? Like orchestrated operations to attack, undermine populations, countries, uh, foment revolution and and uh, and revolts and, and rebellions, uh, coups, um, destructions of infrastructure. I mean, like you know, countless of things, right? Where, so this is, I think, the probably the beginning then of like that criticism that comes in, right? Where we start to say, okay, well, you know, what is the CIA? If the abolish the CIA bill wouldn't work, and if the CIA does covert operations, and that's the most of its budget is covert operations, then is that doing good, or is that perpetrating harm in the world? You know, what is the end of that? Yeah, I mean, the the way that this piece really begins by laying out all that context, I mean, everything you just read and talked about in terms of the absolutely fucking massive, you know, what's now called the IC or the intelligence community, right? Because everything needs a fucking alphabet soup, right? Everything needs a, an acronym and initialism, but, you know... The, the, everything you just laid out, though, really uh, explains and contextualizes how the intelligence community in the United States government has become this fucking bloated mass. Uh, you know, it's it, it's so it, it's so bloated. It it just lumbers around. It continues growing. It's fucking Jabba the Hut, right? Like it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, later in the piece. Uh, they mentioned that, well, you know, you, you, you said there were, you know, 4 million people with security clearances in the United States, which is already, which is already a lot. That is fully more than 1% of the United States population. Well, more than 1% of the adult population has a security clearance. Huh? Well, you know, obviously we can, we can criticize all of this from you know from from a the from the left you know from a radical point of view and, and we should but even if we take it on its own merit much as you know thomas did with the effect of altruism right even if we take it on its own merit it seems to not even uh, follow uh, its own principles you know uh, uh contribute towards achieving its own goals right like only uh, unless we understand its goal is uh, continual growth, right? Infinite growth, the uh, absorption and subsumption of all other powers into itself. Uh, you know, uh, this is also evident not only just in the the sheer number of people that have security clearances, but also later in the piece, uh, they talk about how. You know, when Moynihan was uh, putting forward his, you know, abolition of the CIA Act in the mid 90s, you know, he, he was complaining that, you know, rampant overclassification had created more than, quote, six million supposed secrets in 1993. And yet uh, w what we know now uh, is that 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 number in 2016, you know, has grown to 55 million secrets uh you know bro if you got 55 million secrets you won't got secrets okay <laughs> and if you got 4 million people who can access even just some level of those 55 million secrets again you ain't got secrets <laughs> that's not secrets right mm -hmm. like so like even on their own merit by what they claim to be doing or or whatever like it's it's an like it's an absolute failure except again i think what we have to do is we have to judge the intelligence community 
by its ability to grow, not its ability to do things, not its ability to keep things classified or, or share secrets. I mean, the, the, you know, as this piece goes on to explain, right, like the very function of the uh, original function of the CIA was not to do what it does now, which the, the article starts going, you know, taking as a, a primary kind of mode of criticism, which is that it's kind of uh, shifted its covert operations into acting more and more like military operations. The CIA acts more and more like a paramilitary unit of the U S government, which app operates in secret rather than what it originally was created for. Um, and, it's right there in the name, was to centralize the intelligence uh, collected by various departments uh, and agencies in the U.S. government, right? Like the CIA was originally created for the Cold War, right? It came out of, um, you know, the, the, you know, Truman uh, abolishing the Office of Strategic Services, uh, which was, you know, created after the shock of Pearl Harbor uh, and made the U.S. realize, oh, shit, we need more spies, we need more intelligence, we need more information and all of that. And then, you know, after World War II ends, right, Truman uh, uh, takes a hard look at the OSS, uh, you know, eventually abolishes it, but then two years later creates with the same uh, the same piece of legislation the Department of Defense and the CIA, right? And the idea of the CIA, like I said, was to central was just merely to centralize the intelligence of of all the other new departments and agencies that have been created. But of course, like all these departments that have been around, you know, they 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 grow far outside of their original parameters, outside their original bounds. They have a tendency towards this bloat, uh, a tendency towards you know what's called function creep, right? You create something to do one thing, and unless you, you know, stop it, it's going to eventually start doing more and more other things, start claiming more and more power, more and more resources, more and more rights and abilities under and capacities under its, you know, under its ages. Uh, and that's exactly what we see happening with, with the CIA uh, in, in its modern day uh, instantiation, you know. Uh, and this history has always been there, right? Like this is, it's not like some, at some point in the recent past, the CIA lost its way. Oh, you wayward son, come home again. You know, it was like, no, as I think this New Yorker piece, again, surprisingly really lays out uh, that, that these kinds of uh, both the function creep and the bloat, but also the blunders and the incompetency and also just the sheer, uh, you know, maliciousness um, uh, and, and military or militaristic operations of the CIA have been there from the from the very beginning. I'll, I'll throw it back over to you, Ed, but I did want to also bring out that... Uh, uh, one of the very things that was interesting, you know, around the beginning of the CIA was here. I'll just quote when Harry Truman became president in April 1945, he took a look at the OSS and in September 1945 abolished it. About two years later, he signed the National Security Act, which established the CIA and the Department of Defense. But he didn't want the new agency to be like the group Donovan, who had uh, had run. And the, you know, Donovan was the director of the OSS. Uh, instead, it was supposed to do what its name suggested, centralize the intelligence that various agencies gathered, analyze it, and turn it into something 
something the president could use. Quote, it was not intended as a cloak and dagger outfit, Truman later wrote. He also had to deal with public apprehensions that he might create what a Chicago Tribune headline called a super Gestapo agency, which is why in its charter, the CIA was banned from domestic spying. So, I mean, this is like, this is one of the defined, I also like that, you know, this, you know, they're obviously very fresh off of World War II. The Nazis are, are a, a real deal, uh, still contemporaneous threat, um, uh, you know, as they are growing today. But at, at any rate, it's very funny that like, you know, even back then people were like, damn, what is the CIA? Is Truman making a super Gestapo? <laughs> Did y'all make a super Gestapo? <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, my uh, my we are not building a super gazpacho, uh, sir. Is, is raising a gazpacho lot. is no, a super. No. <laughs> we are, my, we are I not making some good. I would super. love some super gazpacho. That would be dope. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, we did not build this uh, super Gestapo agency shirt. Is is raising a lot of questions. I don't think you understand or answered by my shirt. You know, <laughs> I, th- I think it's just um. It is beautiful also to think through that, well, one, you know, the OSS sounded like it was a pretty God-fucking-awful um, enterprise, and we should be, we're thankful that, or maybe, I mean, it ended, you know, the CIA ended up becoming a whole other animal, but thankful that at least that, like, the OSS did not immediately become the major intelligence agency. I mean, some of the sections where they're talking about, you know, William Donovan's ideas, you know, he wanted, he, he was a wall street journal with uh, a wall street lawyer with a quote, an inversion to the legalistic. He complained that the problem with D day was that there was too much planning. He wanted a private army. I mean, this is not the guy, <laughs> this is not the guy that we want to um, set up an intelligence agency. We don't want the one at all. But also the other options were not good. You know, the New Yorker points out that the other options included a version of McCormack's office in the State Department, which is something like what Moynihan wanted, uh, that uh, J. Edgar Hoover wanted worldwide intelligence to be handed over to the FBI, and that military intelligence should report to him. And that by 1943, he was running undercover operations in 20 Latin American countries. So, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm happy that those people were not around, but nonetheless, what we start to see is, you know, the OSS has an interesting set of hires, right? And allies, right? And customers and collaborators, you know, the hires, uh, New Yorker writes are Ralph Bush, Herbert McCoose, Julia Child. These people immediately went, well, you know, these and other officers immediately went off to the CIA you also had OSS veterans that became CIA directors, Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, William Colby, William Cassie, uh, all of them. We, we also know James C. Scott was a, a CIA <laughs> operative. I didn't know Herbert Marcuse uh, uh, was in the CIA. Julia Child, why? Why? <laughs> Damn, CIA really did get everybody. Yeah, it did. I mean, and they were all like children of Donovan. Like there was, uh, there's a quote in here where um, they were affected by what a quote, what a general in the army to intelligence called the screwball Donovan effect. Casey, who put a Don, who put a picture of Donovan on his wall, said of his old boss, "We all glowed in his presence." 
So, yeah, okay. He lost in of himself the battle, as New Yorker writes, but he won the personnel and the mythology wars. Yeah, there's no covert, there's no mention of covert action in the CIA charter, but each president, starting with Troop and their right, began using it that way. One of the agency's first operations involved meddling in the 1948 Italian oper- election to ensure the victory of the Christian Democrats. The f- subsidies and outright bribery of Italian politicians, some of them on the far, far right, continued into the 1970s. This is a really important one. I mean, NSC1 also, National Security Council 1, uh, National Security Council is his planning body within the White House um, for geopolitical activities, uh, essentially, uh, was concerned with what are we supposed to do with Italy, you know, because in Italy, the Norden, the, the partisans freed themselves, right? And then hung, and, you know, eventually Italians hung Mussolini, right? So you get there, and the communists have already taken control in the north, um, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Well, you know, um, become friends with the fascists, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> become friends with the fascists who were just outed. That seems like a smart strategy that you would do in a worldwide war to fight fascists, you know? Um, Which also raises the question with the recent Italian election where um, oh, yeah. <laughs> fascism did actually win again. Yeah. Yo, with, and this, this time without America's joint? help. Are the boys back in town? <laughs> oh, yeah, or yeah. The boys never Link. lost. The, the boys never left town. I solemnly swear that we did not back the fascists this time. This time. In Italy, but we probably did. I mean, we'll see. We'll learn about it in a hundred years because the records are supposed to be declassified probably in 25, but then they'll delay it and say that there's a national security issue and then it'll be 50 and then it'll be 75 and then a hundred. So, you know, then there's, I like this quote almost from its uh, creation though. There was a sense that something about the CIA was off. The split between covert action and intelligence gathering and analysis was part of it. The director of the agency was also supposed to be the leader of U.S. intelligence as a whole, but, invariably, the person in the job seemed more invested in preeminence than in coordination. That setup remained in place until the establishment of ODNI in 2004, a move that thus far has mostly continued a tradition of trying to deal with the CIA's dysfunction by setting up ever more agencies, offices, and centers. The NSA was established in 1952 in, a seri- in response to a series of cryptography-related failures. Legacy of Ashes, Tim Weiner's 2008 History of the CIA, and still an invaluable overview takes its title from a lament by Eisenhower about what he'd be leaving his successors if the faulty structure of American intelligence wasn't changed. Since Weiner's book published, the ashes and the agencies have only been piling up. So, I mean, mm-hmm. this is not, we're, you know, we're getting a few things here. We're getting uh, a desire to intervie- interfere um, and on the on, in the side of the far right, the far, far right, as they put it, the, the fascists, as we'll put it, um, we're getting a massive, massive creep, you know, function creep, like you're saying, uh, assuming the role of covert operations instead of intelligence consolidation, um, and jockeying desires uh, by personnel trained under or aspiring to take over an apparatus that they want to deploy worldwide for all sorts of things, but specifically mm-hmm. covert operations, right? And then seeming impotence of leaders in the homeland to change anything about this.
And and yet, despite this long sordid history of the CIA, uh, right, which can be criticized essentially from any direction that you would like, right? Like it can be criticized as an arm of American imperial power, or it can be criticized as a an ever uh, a, a, an exemplar of uh, ever bloating bureaucracy, or it can be criticized as a uh, absolutely uh, incompetent uh, agency, um, or it can be criticized, you know, in the way that like you know people like uh, Moynihan did. You know, Moynihan was not a not a radical whatsoever, uh, quite a reactionary figure himself, um, but you know, criticized for their inability to project American power uh, and and also undermine our, you know, uh, America's enemies. Like, you know, essentially you can criticize the CIA from any, any direction that you would like to take. And yet, and yet still, uh, as the New Yorker piece goes on to lay out, you know, still the literature about the CIA, especially, you know, you know, more popular mainstream, you know, books, the kinds of books that have, you know, get a lot of uh, attention, uh, you know, the kinds of books that are written about in places like the New Yorker or the New York Times, right? Like, yeah, these books uh, continue to be churned out that are just, you know, if not outright apologia uh, for the CIA, um, you know, then, then they are just like total dick riding, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. you know, or at best, it seems like, you know, where criticism does happen, it happens in a very, uh, liberal, uh, kind of, you know, liberal Democrat kind of framing of as one example that we'll get to, right. Is that like, uh, there, there aren't enough girl bosses, uh, in the CIA <laughs> or the CIA is, uh, erasing its history of girl bosses in the agency, right? Like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what criticism amounts to. And it's, uh, it's shocking. It's absolutely unbelievable. Like, you know, the, the, the New Yorker piece goes on to talk about, um, a new book called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, which is by Amy Zagart, who's a, a political scientist at Stanford. Her book is like a, both apologia for the, uh, for the CIA, but also kind of more seemingly framed as a uh, as a TED Talk for how to improve the CIA, right? So, like, I, I love uh, the way that it's framed here, um, you know, Zagart has served as an advisor. Uh, well, I mean, this is also telling as well, right? Zagart has served as an advisor to intelligence agencies, and she provides a decent guide to our current bureaucracy. Throughout, her book is clear and well organized, maybe a little too well organized, one feels after taking in the quote, seven deadly biases of intelligence analysis, the quote, four main adversaries, and the quote, five types of attacks in the crypto area, and the quote, three words, four types that define covert action. Uh, the covert action words, incidentally, are, quote, influence, acknowledged, and abroad. <laughs> Not a few paragraphs read like PowerPoint charts. Contradictions are displayed without really being reckoned with. And she observes that the balance between hunting, uh, quote, unquote, hunting and gathering seems off. But in Zagart's telling, the fact that presidents of both parties regularly turn to the CIA from paramilitary and other covert tasks can 
constitutes proof that doing so is part of the order of things. The impression she leaves is that if all goes wrong, it's because some checklists have been missed. One of the top priorities of the U.S. intelligence agents, uh, U.S. intelligence today, she thinks, should be persuading tech companies to get with the program and help out. She moots the creation of yet another agency to deal with OSINT or open source intelligence. So, I mean, this is, and this is a, uh, you know, this is a, a, an academic, right? A, a professor uh, of political science, you know, publishing a book um, by Princeton University Press. So this is meant to be an academic book, uh, you know, by someone who, yeah, sure, you know, has a history of advising the intelligence agencies. Um, but, you know, that should give her an inside view um, from which to step outside and provide critical and objective analysis. But as this, uh, as the New Yorker piece definitely does, you know, points out in just a paragraph, right? Like the, the, what we get instead is, uh, like I said, like a, a both a, a TED talk for how to improve, uh, the, the piece, you know, don't fall into these seven deadly biases of intelligence, uh, of the intelligence community while also, you know, presenting it in such a way that is like essentially, well, if, you know, if it exists, then, then it can't be any other way, right? If the, the status quo is chiseled into stone. Uh, so if it, if it is the fact that all presidents now use the CIA as a paramilitary operation to further their own idiosyncratic and personal, uh, vindictive, uh, aspirations, well, you know, that's, you can't change that. Like, like that's, it, it's like that because it's meant to be like that, Ed, uh, you know, like <laughs> what kind of analysis is this that like this, is this, is this the best that we have that we, that the best that we can muster? I mean, obviously not, but it seems to be uh, what is still somehow inexplicably the the mainstream for writing about uh the the cia which also gets to why both of us were you know when we just when we saw the headline in fact i came across this piece because i saw a screenshot of the headline on twitter and someone being like i can't wait to find out the answer and there you know that that's that tweet with that screenshot had like twenty thousand <laughs> likes and like you know ten thousand retweets or something because there's i I think there's just a wide, I mean, at least on Twitter, there, you know, in those spaces, there's a widespread understanding that the CIA is a, 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 an evil organization uh, and any other framing or engagement with it that starts from any other position than this is an evil organization is wrong and biased and incorrect. Uh, but yet it's what we come to expect because uh, uh, exactly like, you know, the, the books like, you know, Zagartz and some of the others that we'll go through that this uh, New Yorker piece covers have essentially just led us to like, this is the, this is the most we can expect to see in, in mainstream uh, uh, accounts of the, of the agency. When do you think was the first time you saw like a critical analysis of the agency that felt like it could have been in that maybe was either in the mainstream or was approximate to it. You know, I don't think, I don't, I can't really recall the first one I saw in the mainstream, um, but I can definitely recall the first few I saw, which were, you know, Chomsky, pretty much Chomsky. And then of course the bevy of leftists, you know, who have been criticizing this for eons, uh, 
but I think I, but I can't really think of like a mainstream account that I first saw and I was like, Oh, you could do that. Other than you, of course, books and books reviews, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to, to pull out like what, like what the first mainstream criticism I saw of the CIA. I mean, of course, like you, the first one I saw, uh, was Chomsky as well. Um, and and we're you know we're talking you know Chomsky writing in like the sixties right like like reading yeah. some of Chomsky's classic essays in the you know around the, the time of the Vietnam War uh, in the sixties and the seventies um, you know that was I think some of the first reporting I saw. Uh, or some of the first arguments I saw that were laying out, you know, uh, how the intelligence community, uh, you know, operates in in the kind of global geopolitics and American imperial he- uh, uh, hegemonic power and 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 so on. Um, in particular, you know, and some of this is as as well, and you know, some of the reporting by people like Seymour Hirsch as well. You know, um, you know, also reading some of that. You know, that I think that that's the kind of stuff that really starts calling into question for me. You know, the CIA. Uh, but as far as like like big main like mainstream uh analyses i mean i i i don't know because i think it's still so rare i mean it's it's again it's like how we came into this new yorker piece totally expecting it to be a a wishy-washy cost-benefit analysis that you know falls in favor of the cia um and yet that's not what it is at at all you know i i think i'm i'm thinking like even now i feel like the main the major one I feel that the public in general might get exposure to is blowback, right? I think blowback pod mm. is probably like the most, I mean, there have been was, other sort of podcasts and audio formats diving into the CIA, but the seasonal format of diving into very specific moments in American geopolitical uh, history or conflicts that we chose to get into is the, is probably the best criticism and just like primer in historical engagement with the, or engagement with the history, I should say. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to recommend that, that uh, blowback as well. Um, one of the things that I've done like you know, previous, well before I was even had any involvement with the podcast, I, I did a little bit of reading and stuff like that about the CIA and like extensively the OSI, not OSI. That's Venture Brothers. The other uh, OSS. There we go. Mm-hmm. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe Venture. <laughs> it's all roughly like based on the same kind of bullshit because, like, you know, while Bill Donovan was a fucking cowboy, but he was he came from a wealthy family. Like, if you look <laughs> yeah. at like all the early like people that were drafted into working the OSS and then later the CIA all come from families of with financial interests just in the same way that cops don't protect you they protect capital the cia doesn't protect the american people it protects capitalism throughout the world that's why it attacks you know social movements in in chile or in central america or in southeast asia because they know that anytime socialism takes a foothold in one of these countries and people see it working that capitalism's heads is just one inch closer to the chopping block, and wealthy people can't let that happen. Look what's happening right now. That's why they're all turning to effective altruism. They need they need something to convince themselves that it's all right for them to be wealthy and not help anybody out. And the CIA was played that part well, well throughout the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that is that is exactly 
That that is exactly right. It's the CIA is the the, the capitalist intelligence agency. <laughs> but but no, you're right. I mean, it is it is to serve the bourgeoisie. It is also why uh, all you know all of these people like Donovan, right? Like these early uh, founders and directors of, uh, of of you know OSS, CIA. All, all these motherfuckers talked like Humphrey Brogart. You know, their uh, affected transatlantic accent. <laughs> and all that shit right like because that's exactly like the kind that's exactly the families they're coming from which you know irony that the cia killed jfk right like you know he, he was one of them he was one of them but that also shows that you know he stepped out uh you know he stepped out a little bit too much uh and and you know they felt it, it again goes exactly to what jeremy was saying where you know whether whether we believe the conspiracies or not, there is an argument I think to be said that the CIA was uh, extremely displeased. Well, there's not even an argument. There's a lot of proof, empirical proof, that the CIA was extremely displeased uh, with JFK because they thought he was being too soft on communism. He wasn't being hard enough on uh, expanding uh, America's hegemonic power, uh, fighting uh, against the Soviets. You know. In other words, they thought JFK was was uh, was soft. <laughs> they thought he was open yeah. to mm-hmm. negotiation, to to talking to uh, the Cubans, to the Soviets, and so on. And and whether we think that the CIA was behind the assassination of JFK, there is a lot of empirical evidence. Again, shout out to Blowback, who's gone through a lot of this as well in their episodes on Cuba or their series on Cuba. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that the CIA. Uh, was against JFK. Um, and, and that is exactly for the reasons Jeremy just laid out as well, right? It's like, you know, because uh, he wasn't doing enough in their view to uh, uh, secure and protect and project uh, the interest of capital uh, and, and I, imperial power. I imagine that how those meetings went. It was just a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, Northeasterners. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was like, a, it's, you know, it's just fucking, I mentioned Venture Brothers, but that's probably exactly what it was like. It's like, you know, he's out cavorting around with all these Hollywood starlets and having all these extramarital affairs. You know who has <laughs> extramarital affairs? Communists. That's right. Really though, really though, <laughs> all the all the poly people I know, they're all commies or anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they were onto something. Uh, it's because uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. You know that's 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 the <laughs> that's the underlying foundational statement of of, of poly. Uh, no, <laughs> communism in the streets and the sheets. <laughs> um, but no, I no, mean that's the, you, our girlfriend. <laughs> uh, but you, but you are exactly uh, right, Jeremy. I mean, that is exactly the kind. But that is what they. That is the kind of also moralistic uh, excuses they would use. And I think it also does reveal very strongly that even these artifacts, these. Divisions between domestic operations and foreign operations, right? That are baked into the charter of the CIA, right? Where it's like, you know, to prevent it from being a super Gestapo agency, uh, you know, the CIA is banned from doing any domestic spying. Instead, that is uh, given over to the FBI, right? I mean, that's essentially the the division of labor here is the FBI does the homeland, the CIA does everywhere else. But we also know that those divisions are artificial. 
illegal uh, and very porous as well. You know, we've already talked about how the FBI, um, all you know, e- even way back then, had operations in you know. 23 Latin American countries, right? And all of that. Um, and we, we know that the CIA does stuff at home as well. There's proof of it. Uh, and so these divisions are also a, a part and parcel of the function creep of these, of these agencies. I did also want to say really quick before we move on from the, the Chomsky, uh, you know, discussion or, or references. I think maybe one of the first Chomsky pieces I ever read. Uh, was his classic 1967 essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Uh, Masterclass. The Masterclass, such a good essay, uh, published in the New York Review of Books. Um, and, you know, really, it, this essay is not about the CIA or anything like that. It's about the Vietnam War. But, of course, he's talking about the larger kind of, you know, the agencies and practices of, of imperial of American imperial power with Vietnam war being a, you know, contemporaneous at that time, uh, example and case study of, of these larger dynamics and power and, and, and so on. Um, and real, and in that essay, you know, Chomsky is going hard after the, the social scientists and the technocrats, as he put it, who, you know, uh, he argued were, providing a pseudoscientific justification for uh, war crimes uh, in the Vietnam War. 1967, he's talking about this, right? He's talking about academics um, laundering the interest of, uh, of the, the U.S. state, of the CIA, of the FBI, of all, you know, department of the military, you know, the academics providing, you know, their technocratic pseudoscientific justifications for the actions of power, right? This is also part, you know, like a defining feature of Department of Defense Secretary at the time, McNamara, right, who was the ultimate technocrat, thought he could, you know, um, chart his way to victory in the Vietnam War. This is also the rise of, like, the Rand Corporation, right, the ultimate uh, military, industrial, consulting, technocratic organization that we all love to hate. Um, And, you know, Chomsky's uh, analysis and diagnosis of the this kind of you know academic laundering of war crimes uh, uh is still extremely relevant today right i mean this is exactly again to bring it back to the new yorker piece this is exactly what we're talking about with a slew of you know recent books but it's been going on for for you know over 50 years uh you know well over 50 years um but you know uh, all these academics writing books that just act in various ways as like i like i said before uh apologia if not outright dick writing for um the you know for war crimes for the cia um or at best you know the uh, the kind of the softest possible criticism, right? This that like that like that's that's all that we that's all that we can have uh, apparently. No or no no criticism. The one reason why the responsibility of intellectuals and also the the articles that Dwight McDonald wrote in politics that Chomsky is you know invoking and channeling really you know and fleshing out the responsibility of people is just like also 
painting the picture of like a deeply morally bankrupt society, rotten at the core, unable to seriously, if we're adhering to any basic minimal moral standard, be able to accuse other countries or accuse other you know, societies, anyone really of, of acting immorally because of how often we lie, cheat and steal and kill and terrorize. Um, and no one cares at all unless it is done in a way which makes a fool of us or unless there's a way to benefit from knowing it or, uh, or turning against it or criticizing it. And, you know, seeing... I think one of the reasons why it is important to see some sort of criticisms emerge is because it starts to, I mean, this also opens up ground to really start pushing and contesting the moral mythologies about the United States, not just in terms of like the, the country itself, but just the ways in which the elites and, 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 and well-established and powerful sectors of the society have like a really well-established apparatus to convince everyone that they're doing the right thing and they need to be doing the right thing. I mean, this lying, this immoral behavior, this reluctance to, or this refusal to acknowledge other people as human because you need to benefit from crushing their bodies into fuel or blood or uh, to, you know, the oil, the gears. I mean, this is applicable, especially, you know, in, in geopolitics, of course, but in tech, which, you know, in of itself is a function of geopolitics many times, right? I mean, these are the same sort of attitudes that, dominate anything where power is touching right in in tech i mean how many times have we talked about how people just straight up lie for no reason other than to support and and, and extend a business model in an industry uh, that they're using as a cudgel to wage war against some social program or some uh legal arrangement or framework or some uh you know fixture of society the welfare state, uh, you know, that is in the way of them getting even more money. And then similarly, how much of, uh, you know, how, how, how much, how, how many lies were told and how many lies were accepted and swallowed or perpetuated or participated in so that people could profit personally with clout and renown, um, but also positions of power and, and privilege or for, or, you know, for money in of itself. Um, and how much of it, you know how many lies were entertained, also in in the name of unjust, just unjust causes. You know causes that they knew and had the data for and had the information for, showing like there was no reason this should have been allowed to happen. This was the worst possible way to do things. This came at great cost, great human cost, and yet they just wanted to do it themselves, and so they did anything they could to do it. I mean, this is the story. This is the story as old as as old as civilization. This this form of civilization is, you know. So I think also one reason why the CIA stories are pretty, you know, throw that all on there is because, you know, the defense industry is plays, again, a key role in the tech industry here, you know, and that's that's one of the angles, one of the overlaps here, right? The people in these halls, they walk with each other, they talk to each other, they play with each other, they, you know, they go to schools with each other, they socialize with each other, their children go to schools together, they marry each other, they're friends with each other. Like, these are all part of the same amalgamated class of individuals um, that are basically pawn scum, you know, in the society. That's just mm -hmm. poisoning everything. I mean, worse than pawn scum, you know, but you know, still, I mean, it's best to think of them as that or as a parasite.
And and in their heart of hearts, they they know they know well what they are and what they do as well, right? Like, you know, th- I think this is this is this is clear again and again in different ways. I, I'm just reminded of one really uh, nice kind of nugget from the New Yorker piece as well that in 1973, or rather, yeah, in 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 1973, the CIA director. Um, at the time, had asked senior agency officials, quote, to produce a list of things the CIA had done that might have been unlawful. The resulting document, covering just the past 15 years, was known in-house as the Family Jewels and was almost 700 pages long. <laughs> so, yeah, this is by their own judgment of things that they had done that might have been unlawful. So, you know, we have to assume this is by the the, the most friendly possible interpretation of their actions, you know, and yet it was uh, over 700 pages long and covered just 15 years, right? Uh, just the years from 1958 to 1973. Okay, sure, that was during the Vietnam War and, you know, and during all of that. <laughs> you know, that was, that was ancient history. Hey, those were exceptional times, all right? <laughs> Who amongst us didn't engage in at least a dozen war crimes uh, during, the, during the heady years of the 60s, okay? <laughs> telling me you wouldn't have uh, you know, called in a drone strike on that wedding, too? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing as well, right? This Family Jewels document is just, like I said, that 15 years from uh, 1958 to 1973. I mean, let's jump up, right? And it's just like... Why do you think the CIA is doing things like the CIA has a podcast now? It's com- competitors. We're we're in competition with the CIA, right? But the CIA is constantly running like, you know, those weird social media campaigns or TV ads about being like, you know, I, I I'm a millennial uh with you know, I'm a small bean millennial with uh with with ADHD um you know uh, uh I have trauma uh you know uh I'm also the fam- you know uh the the daughter of immigrants like and I'm proud to be a CIA you know agent. <laughs> <Listen>. <laughs> it's like I work for the CIA Sometimes yeah, like, I get I anxious. Keep, keep doing this shit, right? Because it's yeah, I wonder why you get anxious okay? working at the CIA. Wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you scared somebody's gonna come for you? Are you scared <laughs> your crimes are gonna catch up with you and that you will not be allowed into the kingdom of God? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? You remember the time we had uh, the tankies like anger bombing our um, our mentions? This machine kills communism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's also just part of being a podcast. I mean, it's appropriate that CIA has a podcast now because apparently every podcast is a CIA front. <laughs> Bro, it, it, it was it was like even more levels, uh, <laughs> like deeper than that. I, I love a, a cork board with red string just as much as the next person. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, on one hand, I think you know the. The CIA knows knows well what it does, and it weighs heavy on their conscience, and it manifests. You know, the body keeps score, and it manifests as things like Havana syndrome, right? Like, you know that. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, uh, CIA is also extremely good. You know, 
at, at fooling themselves. You know, if, if psyops are their bread and butter, then they self psyop all the time. Um, or at least they psyop uh, the mouthpieces who write the histories um, and analyses of the, of CIA. So I want to end our discussion of this piece by quoting the last uh, paragraph, because I think it's really quite good. Zagart writes, quote, if you ask intelligence officers what misperceptions bother them most, odds are they'll mention ethics, end quote. She quotes an official who complains that, quote, people think we're lawbreakers, we're human rights violators. Zagart insists that, quote, officers think about ethics a lot. She portrays the agency as being filled with hardworking moms and dads who do a great deal of quote-unquote agonizing. No doubt she's right, but if the CIA keeps falling down on all the same, uh, all the same, something must be tragically amiss in the agency structure or culture or both. All the talk of coups and assassination plots, Zagart worries, distracts people from understanding the CIA's more basic intelligence mission. In fact, the party most distracted by such activities and by the military role it has taken on seems to be the agency agency itself. So here, I mean, this is great because what we have here is Zagar, right? The, the Stanford political scientist who's also been an advisor to intelligence agencies, right? Writing a book about the CIA, uh, you know, running interference for them, being like, Actually, they think a lot about ethics, uh, and it's offensive if you say that they don't. Um, and they are just agonizing and hardworking moms and dads who sometimes engage in assassination plots and coups. But, you know, that's just like, hey, it's, it's you know, that's just the, the 21st century, all right? That's just working and living in the 21st century. Like, why? Why run that kind of interference? What is the purpose? What is the point of doing that? It makes, it makes you sound... It makes you sound uh, absurd. Uh, I don't think it's going to convince anybody that, oh, actually, you're right. The CIA is good. Like, you know, uh, I, I didn't think about the fact that they agonize over ethics all the time. Like, you know, listen, if I was doing war crimes every day, I would agonize over ethics. You know, you need to figure out what you can legally lie about and what you could probably illegally lie about but get away with, you know? So, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they're thinking about ethics in the same way effective altruists are thinking about ethics, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is to say, not at all, <laughs> not at fucking all. think that constitutes an episode of the podcast this machine kills um i i will continue to ape and steal the the bit from uh one of my favorite podcasts Bunta vista because i think it's just a a nice way to bring to a close our discussion so with that uh thank you all for listening you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills where we are starting our fourth book club our fourth installment of the tmk book club uh we will be going through a fantastic uh 
a sociological analysis of finance um, called An Engine, Not a Camera, How Financial Models Shape Markets by the sociologist Donald McKenzie. This is a classic book in the social studies of finance, uh, in the critical uh, analysis of economics uh, and the power of um, economics, not to uh, merely, you know, chart what the economy is doing or describe the operations of the financial sector, but instead as a productive and normative endeavor, right? Like economics does not describe the economy. Economics creates the economy, right? Uh, they are not merely giving us a snapshot of the fi of finance. They are the engine driving finance right so it's a it's a really really great uh analysis of the power of the of economics as a discipline um for uh doing a lot of stuff in the world um under the guises of science and models and, and theories uh and so we're going to be going through this book as always, chapter by chapter, episodes dropping bi-weekly, starting uh, on the Patreon feed this weekend with chapter one. So find us over there, subscribe, just $5 a month gets you access to that, plus a whole long and ever-growing backlog of uh, other great premium content. So um, until then, later. Adios.